Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. So glad you've joined us on campus. Those of you joining us online, welcome to you. It's a beautiful day that the Lord has made. Trust you're doing okay. We are finishing up this uh, series, which I know has been meaningful. I've gotten so much uh, feedback and comments. This is a a series that we have borrowed uh, from Andy Stanley in the book he's written called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. (laughs) How many of you know you really don't have to say anything after that? I mean, we all all connect with that immediately, don't we? (laughs) Yes, it's true. And so what we've learned is that there are five very important questions that if we ask them and answer them honestly, will give us the kind of perspective we need to make good choices in our lives. And we're going to rehearse those five things. Today is the fifth question, and we're going to get to that. Our text this morning, I've chosen two places in the New Testament, John's Gospel, chapter 13, and then in 1 Corinthians 13, one verse there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to those uh, places. If not, of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Here's the context. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples for the final time, and he is talking to them about very important things. And in that conversation, we find verse 34. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And now we're to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a very popular passage. We hear it read at weddings and in other important occasions. And it's the Apostle Paul talking about love and its definition. And I just want to pick out one verse, verse 5. And it says, love does not dishonor others, does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, may God inspire us today and encourage us through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Okay, let's rehearse these questions. If you're just coming into the series for the first time today, I know some of you are on campus for the first time in a long time. Welcome back. We're glad, glad you're here. So let's, uh, let's rehearse these questions that we've been talking about. Here's the first question, the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself, really? Am I being honest with myself, really? Very important question. As you're on the, uh, uh, the crossroads of life when a big decision, a big choice has to be made, being really honest is really important. Question number two, it's the legacy question what story do I want to tell? We know that our lives are a narrative. Our lives are a story that is told really one decision upon another. Our, 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 our entire lives can be told that way. And another question, way to, to answer, ask the question is to, is to simply say, what story do you want told about you? So what story do I want to tell? An important question. Number three is the conscience question. This is The question, is there a tension in the middle of this process of making a decision? Is there tension there that needs attention? Is there uneasiness? Is there a lack of peace? Is there trouble? You know, in Christian vernacular, you might say, I have a check in my spirit or I'm lacking God's abiding peace. And so it's an important moment to stop and and ask, 
am I uneasy about this for some reason? And do I need to let that uneasiness have its effect in the process of making a decision? Then the fourth question is the maturity question. We asked this from last week, and it is what is the wise thing to do? Not necessarily the, the, the good thing or the bad thing. That's not the standard, not legal or illegal. That's not the standard, not moral or immoral. Hopefully we, we can rise above that basic question, but is it wise? Not just good or bad, but is it the wise thing to do? Really important questions. Now we get to the fifth question today, and it's the relationship question, and it's simply this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? Now let me just give you a fair warning. It's unlike the other four questions. This question stands alone in its effect in the process of making a major decision. And it's different from the other four in that the first four all have personal benefit. If I am really honest with myself, that's going to be good for me. If I want to tell a, a, a story I'm proud of, sooner or later, if I make a decision based on that, that's going to be good, a good thing for me personally. If I have a check in my spirit, I don't, I don't have God's peace, and I, I wait for God's peace, and I settle finally on a decision that, that also has the peace of God accompanying it, that's good. That's going to work out well for me, and I know that. And ultimately, if I do what the wise thing is to do in the will and ways of God, if I do the wise thing, that's going to be to my benefit. So all four of the first questions are definitely good for me. But here's fair warning. This last question doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn out good for me. What is the loving thing to do? There may be no tangible or measurable or noticeable return for doing the loving thing because we can't determine what someone else is going to do, even in response to love. And so it may or may not work out to our benefit. Let me uh, try to give some context for this statement that Jesus made at the Last Supper. He comes into town for the last time, and it's the triumphal entry. We celebrate this as Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar. This is when throngs of people came out. Jesus is riding on this colt, and he comes into town, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing palm branches and their cloaks down in front of Jesus as a symbol of honor. And so the disciples are pretty excited about this, I imagine. They, they've seen the movement growing steadily over the course of three years, and now like the climax of Jesus' public life and ministry is this great parade into Jerusalem for the last time. And so you can imagine they're dreaming, they're dreaming about an emerging new kingdom. We're going to reclaim the Jewish kingdom here uh, out of Roman bondage. And Jesus keeps alluding to some idea that maybe he's the one, he's the Messiah, and maybe this is going to go big. And they're excited about that. In fact, James and John actually uh, approach Jesus with their mother to ask if in the new kingdom that's coming, could we sit on your right hand and the left, left hand? So they're reaching for power and, and for position, and, and they see a, an optimistic future. They have no idea how the rest of this Passover weekend is going to unfold. Jesus knows full well what's happening. No one else really has an idea. So they come to this last supper. Jesus begins by saying, okay, guys, here's the first thing I need to tell you. I'm going to leave. I'm checking out. 
which was incredulous for them. What do you mean you're leaving? We're on the precipice of this revolution. The kingdom is about to be restored. You can't go anywhere. And yet he assures them, yes, I'm going to leave. And, and then these words, the words that we have just read in your hearing, words that you have heard before, words that when I read them to you a moment ago, they didn't register very deeply in your conscience because you've heard the words. And they're so simple and it's so almost casual that we've heard them so many times in our lives that we don't appreciate the substance of the words, the weight of the words, the implication of these words. These, these words actually have changed the world. These words actually flipped the world upside down, turned it inside out. This, this was a new paradigm that Jesus now has introduced in the world that has changed everything. This is, what, this is what caused these guys to be just a little sect, a little Nazarene sect. You know, you got a young rabbi and, a, and this little dabble of followers and they're going around and there's a little dust, you know, that's flying up behind them and you don't really take them too seriously. And the political powers in play and the religious powers in play, they don't pay much attention. But as the crowds begin to grow over the course of three years of public ministry, they're starting to get annoyed or at least curious about this. And finally, the Jewish leaders conspire with Rome and they just figure, well, if we can just take out this young rabbi, this whole movement will die and that'll be the end of it. So that's the course that they take. But Jesus knows who he is and Jesus knows what he is about to do. And when we hear these words that he speaks, we think, well, they're just, that's just so easy. It's, it's so... It's so obvious. It's too, it's too simple. And we think that, that some, some kind of worldwide movement that affects all of eternity, the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth, God's love manifests and demonstrated by the death of his own son. We just think that that kind of story needs some kind of complex response. So when Jesus says the words he says, we miss an interpret them. We misapply them. We, we underappreciate them. We don't know how serious they are. We don't know that, that these words are the essence of Christianity, that this is what the kingdom of God looks like in the earth in which we live, that everything rests on this cornerstone of the words that he uses at the Last Supper. We think it has to be more than this. One of the reasons we think it has to be more is because we've never seen a man being whipped, scourged to within an inch of his life. We've never personally laid eyes on a human being who's strapped to a pole and, and beaten until he begs to die. But the executioner doesn't kill him with a whip because he's skilled in this, in, this, in this particular practice. And so he stops just short of killing the victim. Killing the victim would be merciful. We've never seen anyone beaten to within an inch of their life like that. We think it has to be more complicated, uh, more complex. We're critical thinkers. And so, so this whole thing has to be layered and has to be, you know... Uh, understood only by people who are especially thoughtful to sort it out. But instead, Jesus just lays a basic foundation, a simple truth that is all-encompassing, that changes everything. We think it has to be more than that because 
We've never seen a man crucified. We've never seen a man who days before his own death, he sets his course to go to the very place where he knows he will suffer, be tortured, and crucified. And he's doing this. Why? He's doing it for the sake of his enemies. He does it for the people who don't like him. He does it for the people who have rejected him. He does it for all of humanity who, who has chosen a life of rebellion toward the better instincts of God for us, the created order, the structures that God's put in place in order that we might find the hope we need to be forgiven of our sins, made ready for eternal life. We've never seen anyone crucified. We've not seen it, so we underestimate the words. But there's nothing, there is nothing that's deeper, more profound, more important, more substantial than a person who would die, intentionally, willfully die for people who don't even like him. Nothing could be more in contrast to the human instinct we have to be selfish and to do our own thing and have our own way and to provide for our own comfort. Just the opposite. It's a powerful moment. It's a powerful thing. And so what did he say? Let me put it back on the screen for you. John 13, 34. He said, first, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. Now, the disciples aren't receiving commands very well. We don't like commands. We don't like being told what to do. They go, another command. We already got the 10 commandments. We got that 10, and then the Mosaic Law also includes 600 plus other commands, other dictates. So we got hundreds and hundreds of commands. Uh, in our denomination, the United Methodist Church, we have a book of discipline. It has all of our rules and regulations in it. It's over 900 pages long. Somebody stop it. Somebody stop. We have to stop. Stop that. Jesus said, a new command I give you. And not just a new command as if to add it on to all the other commands, but rather a command that supersedes all the other commands. In other words, this command is the only command you need. This command not only supersedes all the others, but it discounts and discards all the other commands. If you have this command in place, you don't need another one. If you understand this one, then all of the others will take care of themselves. So a new command I give you. This is, this is the classic paradigm shift. This is a new thing. This is a new order. This is a statement that's never been heard in all of humanity, in all of time. The statement of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper form for us the only place necessary to stand and to practice your life on the earth with this command. He said, a new command I give you. And here's the next phrase. A new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. Now, he wasn't commanding them to feel something. He was commanding them to do something. Love is not merely feeling and emotion. Love is action. L love is something that is demonstrated. It's practical. It, 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 it does physical, practical essential things. And so this is something I want you to do is what 
he was saying. And his, his next statement is actually unthinkable. This is, where, this is where it goes to another level, another dimension. This is the phrase that actually has changed the world. From that little Jewish Nazarene sect, now within 300 years after that, had, had conquered an empire. And now 2,000 years later, here we are in a room talking about the same Jesus and the kingdom that he's established that will have no end and celebrating the great victory he has made on our behalf. Taken over the world and will influence all of eternity through these words. Trump the golden rule. Went over the top of everything. This is it. Here's the next phrase. New command I give you, love one another as I has, have loved you, so you must love one another. Are you kidding me? As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. If you're going to participate in my kingdom, if you're going to, if you're going to be part of my movement, you have to love as I've loved. And loving as I have loved, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Let me ask you a question today. What were you up to when you first understood and accepted the call to follow Jesus? Those of you who are followers of Jesus in the room, listening to my voice today. What were you up to when you became aware of your need for Jesus and his love and forgiveness? I don't want you to think about that very long. Just kind of get a general picture. Because if you think about it too long, you know, you'll go, wow, I was a mess. But rather, I came to faith when I was 16 years old. And I've said this out loud, not a minute too soon. Because at 16, I was beginning to make plans for the things I wanted to do and the things I wanted to experience and the things that I was going to engage. And as I say, Jesus got a hold of me just in time. And so, and so what about you? What were you up to? when Jesus first came into your life. Let me tell you something that's an amazing thing. That Jesus loved you, accepted you, included you, and forgave you anyway. And since you've been a Christian, you've stepped in it on a regular basis. And how has Jesus treated you after you decided to follow him, made a commitment, devoted your life, made a covenant with God to live for Jesus' sake, how has he responded to you? He's loved you. He's accepted you. He's forgiven you. He's extended mercy to you. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over and over again. He's done all of that anyway. He's answered your prayers anyway. He's forgiven your sins and forgotten them anyway, in spite of us. And me too. What right do I have after having been forgiven so many times for, for the dumb stuff that I've done? What right do I have to withhold forgiveness or acceptance or mercy to anyone who has wronged me in some way? small or large, one time forgiving them, two times, three times, 50 times, 
a hundred times, a thousand times based on the way I have been loved. Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That's my question. How has Jesus loved you? Unconditionally, thoroughly, without hesitation, with full devotion to your best interest. <laughs> John 13, 35, next verse, watch. By this, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The term by this, this phrase from the original language of Greek, it is actually a demonstrative pronoun. Hear the word demonstrative, demonstrate. So Jesus isn't asking guys to feel something. He's asking, he's asking us to do something. By this, by what? By doing this, by doing what? By loving one another the same way that you've been loved by me. This is how people will know that you are my followers, my disciples. Let me put it in a different phrase. Let me paraphrase it this way. I'll put it on the screen. Jesus' followers would demonstrate their devotion to God by putting the person next to them in front of them. By putting the person next to them in front of them. Isn't this clarifying? Isn't this sobering? Isn't, isn't, isn't this a reality that should guard over all of our consciousness? Shouldn't this be like what we fall back on? Isn't this the default in every decision? Isn't this the default in every relationship? Isn't this the way, however simple it may seem, and yet profound in its consequence? It's amazing. Shouldn't this serve as a guide, as a signpost, as a compass? Shouldn't it inform how we date, how we parent, how we boss, how we manage, how we coach, how we pastor? Shouldn't it inform all of that? Shouldn't it be the boundaries, the perimeters around which we engage with one another and our spouses and our coworkers and our neighbors? The question gives voice to God's will on issues even where the Bible is silent. And we have this insepid justification over and over again in our culture today. When well-meaning people, I suppose, come up with a statement like, but the Bible doesn't say anything is wrong with, and then you fill in the blank. Doesn't it just solve all of that? Doesn't it just, just override all of that? This question closes actually all the loopholes. It exposes hypocrisy. It stands as a judge and jury. It's so simple, and yet it's inescapably demanding. Love one another as I have loved you. Wow. And the Apostle Paul gives us perhaps the best application points in the New Testament book of Galatians. He unpacks the fruit of the Spirit. It, it, just, it just knocked the Apostle Paul back off his feet. I mean, it staggered him. He tried to get his mind around it, his spirit around it. He said, for example, the, the fruit of the Spirit, which will manifest in your lives in relationships with the people around you, will look like this. It'll be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Man. Does anyone feel a high bar? And yet this is 
the promise that we can allow the Spirit of God to cultivate this fruit, these virtues in our lives. I want to say something to men right here. I've, I've thought this for many years, and I just want to say it out loud this weekend. I get the impression, and maybe I have this perspective because of my own maleness, my own sense of manliness, which may not be on balance and healthy, but when I see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, I mean, just on first blush, I go, That's, that feels weak to me. Feels like weakness, not virtuous. And so if you're a man going, now there, there's, the, there's the pastor talking about the fruit of the spirit again. Listen to me, Bubba, listen to me. Here's my challenge to you. How much maturity, how much strength, how much character, how much power, internal power, does it actually take to live in relationship practicing the fruit of the spirit? How much courage does it take to be loving all the time? Joyful, peaceful, patient. I mean, how much real stuff does it require to live that way? We all know what it takes. I mean, you got to be muscly. You got to be strong. You got to be character filled. You got to be Christ like. You have, you have to really be something in the development of who you are and your essence as a human being to live in the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said, this is what it means to love as you've been loved. Then in 1 Corinthians 13, all of us have heard this passage, but it's, it's the gold standard for love, what, what love looks like. This is where we go for a definition. So what does love require of us? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Wow, man. And then this phrase in verse 5, which, which we read, in the first phrase of verse 5, it says, it does not, it does not dishonor others. How does that play out in today's culture? It does, love, be, loving others the way you've been loved by Jesus does not dishonor other people. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not acting disgracefully or indecently toward any other person. Love doesn't create regret. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It does not keep score. It conveniently forgets the bad and elevates the good. It forgives and then it forgets. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It doesn't uh, smuggle harmful things into a relationship. It protects a relationship. It always keeps harmful things out. It does not seek to win arguments. Love works to protect the relationship. Paul finishes up this powerful piece of literature by saying love always hopes, always preserves, always protects. That's what love requires. What does love require? It requires that. That's the requirement. And aren't these the things that you expect from the people closest to you? Your spouse, your, your fiance, your significant other, your kids? Isn't this what you expect from them? Yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I need. That's what I want. That's what I expect. If these are the behaviors and 
responses that we consciously and even subconsciously expect from others, then shouldn't they be required of us as well? I mean, isn't that fair? That's right. What does love require of us? And if you're a Jesus follower today, if you've said yes to Jesus and you're trying to follow him the best you can, it's like asking the question this way, what does my Lord require of me? Not just merely what does love require, but what does the Lord require? Those of you who are religious in your note-taking realize that I haven't made any points There's just one point. What does love require? What does it require? I don't know about you, but I feel like I know a lot of things about a lot of things. And and then on the other hand, I'm confronted every day with the reality that I don't know much at all. So a lot of things I don't know. I'm not conversive in a lot of subjects. I wish I knew more about that subject or the other. But here's my hunch, because I know it's true of me, and I suspect it's true of you. Listen, almost all the time, in the crossroad moments of important relationships in my life, almost every time, if not every time, I know what love requires of me. I know what love requires. And the question is always then, am I willing to do what love requires? That's my point. Maybe we should talk to God about this. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, remind us uh, today that in order to make better decisions, live with fewer regrets, these good questions can lead to better decisions. We know that our decisions will determine the direction and the quality of our lives. We know it. They create a story. So Lord, help us to write a good one. And remind us, Lord, that Our current regrets, and we all have them, are only part of our story and that they don't have to be the story. Dear one living in regret, do you you hear the prayer? They don't have to be your story going forward. Lord, remind us that our past should remind us but doesn't have to define us. So help us tell ourselves the truth, even when the truth makes us feel bad about ourselves. Help us to explore rather than ignore our conscience, our uneasiness. Help us to raise our standard of living from what's legal, acceptable, and permissible to what is wise. Lord, help us know the wise thing to do. And now in this moment, Lord, What does love require? What does love require? What does love require? It changed the world once. Perhaps it'll change it again. 
And even if it doesn't change the world, Lord, we know certainly it will change us. So help us to know what love requires. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?